We are uh, preparing to begin a series um, next week that will be a study that will run for several weeks on the, on the book of, of Romans. And in preparation for that, one of the lessons that Michael suggested that we do is to talk about the priesthood and its relationship to the idea of grace. And so I, I want to talk about, uh, that seems to be a kind of a backdoor way to get there, and perhaps it is, but... Uh, I want to. This study is going to be a little bit different. I've done some studies in the past on the priesthood and on the tabernacle, but this one's a little bit different angle. So I promise that this is not just a, a regurgitation of an old lesson that uh, I did. And I did find a lesson I did similar to this uh, some time ago. But this one's this one's going to be a little bit different because we want to ask a question: Why a priesthood? Why did God, and we're talking about the Levitical priesthood specifically, why did God choose to, in the law of Moses, to institute a, a in-between between Himself and man? And uh, so we want to ask some questions here, like, uh, or, or understand, first of all, what is a priest? And, well, a priest, number one, he serves God. He is a minister to God. And number two, he's going to make intercessions between God and man. He's kind of a, you can think of him like um, if you were to go to, if you were to go to be on trial and appear before a judge, you might have a lawyer. And that lawyer is an intercessor, an in-between between you and that 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 civil authority, that judge, uh, that's going to pronounce some kind of sentence upon you perhaps. Uh, that would be an, an intermediary or an intercessor. And so a priest was kind of that. Is They served God and they interceded between God and man. And uh, we'll look at exactly how that happened. Uh, but really, why a priest? Now think about it. If you have a God that is omnipresent, Everywhere can be everywhere at the same time. Why does there need to be a priest? Why a go-between? If you think about a corporation, you know, you have the CEO of a corporation and then you have these vice presidents. And under the vice presidents, you have these divisions. Well, the reason they have that in this very hierarchical arrangement is because that CEO can't be everywhere, can he? He can't manage every single person that may be thousands of people in this, this organization. And so it requires this system of hierarchy to manage that. But God's not bound by that, is He? He's capable of having, He's capable of being with you at the same time that He's with somebody else. He's capable of being with us here at Anna Street this morning at the same time that He's at Gunner and Bridgeport and any other place you want to think about that calls on His name this morning. He can be in all those locations at that same time. So, again, that's curious. Why would there be a priesthood? Why establish a system in the Old Testament where specifically man's relationship with God uh, relied upon this intermediary, this tw- this priest? Well, the answer, I believe, is that it is in this. And you look at this verse found in Hebrews chapter 8. It says, it's speaking of the priest, it says, these guys who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. That whole tabernacle, 
everything in it is a type or a, a symbol of the salvation that God would once one time offer to man through His Son Jesus Christ. That whole thing was built to tell through, through the idea of shadows and types that very story. And the priest was a part of that story. He was part of that type. So we can think of, well, you know, just from a rational standpoint, you know, if you got somebody handling all these animals and doing all these sacrifices and they're around knives and fire and blood and all, maybe it's not good to have everybody do that. That's a convenience measure. But I would suggest to you this morning that the reason that God chose to institute a priesthood was much deeper than that. That he was, that he was showing a picture for us. And, and I think we'll see that as we continue this study. Now let's talk about the selection. God said to Moses, Now take, Abraham, take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that they may minister to me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nahab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. And so we see that Aaron and his sons were specifically selected to serve in this capacity, in this office, as a priest. Notice that God would... Notice what He says, the very last sentence there, about uh, glory and beauty. That, that the garments would be, would be made for Aaron... For glory and beauty. Do you think it was Aaron's glory and beauty? No. It was for God's glory and beauty. And so that when people would come up and they would see Aaron, they would be reminded that they are dealing with a God that is holy, that is set apart, that is unique, that is, that is very great. It was wasn't so God would be impressed by the way that Aaron looked, but it was so that the people would see that they were approaching a God that was that way. And so we had this... this uh, so Moses did that. He got, he got Aaron and he got his sons, and Aaron's sons, and, and he was going to make them priests. And so we find that uh, that process, that consecration of them becoming priests was an involved process. They had a sin offering, they had a burn offering, they had a peace offering, they had a wave offering, they had a meat offering. All of these different sacrifices occurred before these guys were made priests. Well, why? Why was that necessary? The answer is because they were men. They were sinful men just like you and I. And so for God to accept them to be this this intermediary between His people and Himself, they had to go through a complete cleansing process. And this cleansing process was one uh, that, he, that was a consecration where God could recognize them as pure and holy. And then we find that uh, Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle and when they came back out and they addressed all the people, they pronounced a blessing upon all those people. And then the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And that glory would have been like a, like a light. They would have seen it like a light or a cloud that was above this tabernacle. And so, the, so God's glory filled this tabernacle. 
And when it did, then... Let's just read on. It says, And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Can you imagine... Can you imagine that you, you are there in this, in this area and you see God's glory filling the temple or the tabernacle, uh, filling that tabernacle with this, this light that you can understand and then suddenly a fire comes out from before that and it just devours all those sacrifices that were there. They're gone. They're burnt completely up. What an incredible thing that must have been to witness. Well, interestingly, that's recorded in Leviticus chapter 9. That's where we read just a moment. Now, we're going to go just a few verses forward in Leviticus chapter 10, and we're going to find two of his sons, two of Aaron's sons, were this Nahab and Abihu. They were there at this congregation. I can't say it all of a sudden. They were there at this ceremony where they were inducted as priests at this consecration. And now here they are, a few verses later, it says this, they have and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took uh, his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So the fire went out before the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And can you imagine that just a seemingly a few days after the priests were consecrated, they were set up to, to serve, that here we have this incident where they, they did something very much against what God wanted them to do, and God struck them dead right there. Now, interestingly, Eleazar was another brother. And you know what? Eleazar made a great high priest. You can imagine you would, wouldn't you? You, you would kind of get it that it's pretty serious if, if we've seen two powerful uh, episodes uh, uh, with fire, once a burning of the offering, another a burning of Nahab and Abihu, his very brothers. You can imagine that that would kind of get your attention. And so Eleazar was a very righteous and a very good priest and his son Phinehas was the same served very faithfully but do you see what happens do you see what happens when God when man tries to be the intermediary even though God set this system up he set it up to fail now think about that God set this system up deliberately to fail because there was something better coming down the road. And that's what I want you to see this morning. That, that it was a very serious thing to, to be a priest of the Lord's. So what did he teach Israel? Well, Israel would have seen this. First of all, look who he chose. He chose Aaron and his sons. Now, do you remember Aaron? That Aaron was the one that when, they, when the children of Israel came across, they were in the wilderness, and Moses went up to the mountain to get the, the, uh, the, tabern- the, the uh, covenant, the Ten Commandments, and he came back down, and you know what? They were building a golden, golden calf, and they were going to worship that calf. And you know who was leading them? Aaron was. 
they would recognize that they were, they were dealing with a forgiving God. But they would also recognize that this was important work. I mean, after all, they're going to be the intermediary between man and God. They would also recognize that there was a holiness about this work. There was a uniqueness about that. They, they were set apart. And they were going to understand that their relationship through God was going to have to run through this priest. And so think about as you come and you make those sacrifices that, that, were, that were required and you offer those sacrifices and the priest executed those sacrifices. Your relationship with God was dependent upon that priest doing it right. Think about that. So it wasn't enough just for you to do it right, but you had to rely on this priest to do it right as well. Now again, remember... This whole system was set up for why? To teach us something today about what's much better. So let's move forward. In the New Testament, is there a New Testament priesthood? Well, pretty obvious at this point that it is or we wouldn't be talking about it. So in the Hebrew writer says this in Hebrews chapter 7, Therefore, if perfection were through Le- Le- the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. So that priesthood, remember I told you it was set up to be a failure because in essence, to use a fallible man... as a go-between between other fallible men and an infallible God is not a tenable situation. And and God knew that when He set it up. He was teaching that lesson deliberately when He set it up. So do we have priests today? Now some of you might think of the Catholic religion and that type of priest. But that's not really what we're talking about. What we're going to find is that we do. Let's look at it. We find that Jesus is our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 it says, Seeing then that we have a high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So Aaron's not our high priest. And Jesus didn't need a consecration ceremony like Aaron and his sons. But rather we have a high priest that's the Son of God. Far more perfect than what they had. So who are the priests today? Well, we're it. The church. Peter writing here says, You also as living stones are being built up a holy house, or a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, the priests are whom? It's you and I. The high priest is Jesus and the the priest is you and I. I want to go back. Uh, There was a, a passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that says this. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Under the old law, who drew near God? Only the, only the priest. Think about that tabernacle and that, that gate, that, that fence that went up around that. Uh, the normal person could not 
could not come draw near God. Only the priests could. And that's why you and I today are, are the priests. Metaphorically, that outer court has been knocked down and now you and I have access to God because we have a high priest that we can have confidence in. So how is it different? Well, three different ways that I looked at. Location, operation, and finally and most importantly, sanctification. Let's look at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the high priest went in before the, the inside the holy place, the most, excuse me, the most holy place, once a year. There was a veil there that split that tabernacle in two. And he went in there only once a year. And he did so for both his sins and for the sins of the people. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ didn't pass into the presence of God on earth. He passed into the presence of God in heaven itself. The location of the priests today, or in the Old Testament, was in that tabernacle. They worked inside that court. They did. They took care of the ministry in there. And then today, we find where are the priests? They're in the church. They're in the they're in the Lord's kingdom. Now think about what happened to to uh, the two sons who Nadab and Abihu who burnt that fire that God didn't want. He struck them dead. And think about you and I now. We hold a similar office in the church. Not that He's going to strike us dead on earth, but He's going to hold us accountable. There's going to be an accountability. It won't be in this life, perhaps, but it will be in the life to come. And finally, operation of the the high priest. In the Old Testament, he was to make sacrifices for his sins and for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. Whereas in the New Testament, he made sacrifice for the sins of his followers one time and one time only. The operation of the priest... They made daily sacrifices both for themselves and for the sins of the people because they were all sinful people. In the New Testament, we make daily sacrifices also. Now, we're not, we're not sacrificing animals, are we? We're not doing that. That was part of the old law. The new law requires a different type of sacrifice. And this sacrifice is a sacrifice of personal will. In other words, we are to sacrifice what we want and supplant that with what God wants us to do. I've got a picture up here of some people that are coming together to do some work for somebody. Perhaps that's, that's someone who can't take care of themselves. And so they're getting together to do that for them. They're not doing it for themselves. That's a, that's a sacrifice that they're making on, on, on the behalf of someone else. And so when we talk about the spiritual sacrifices of the New Testament, that's really what we're talking about. In Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1, it says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Not a dying sacrifice like they, like they had in the old law, but a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And then finally, again, most importantly, sanctification. In the Old Testament, sanctification, in other words, cleansing, was incomplete. 
it wasn't, it wasn't a, a complete cleansing. It says in Hebrews 10, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. It was merely covering the sin. You think about if, uh, if we were to take a red marker and we were to come over here to this wall and they, we were to, to paint something on that wall. Well, we could probably, and we were to just put on there super dark, we could probably get enough paint that eventually we could cover it and you couldn't see it. It'd still be there, wouldn't it? It'd just be under layers of paint so you wouldn't see it. That's what happened under the old law, is they merely covered it up. Under the new law, we have complete sanctification. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to Him through God, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to make us right with God. He doesn't just cover it up. He knocks the sheetrock down. He replaces the sheetrock with new, where that old stain is completely gone, completely removed. There's a removal of sin, not merely a covering of sin. So, what does this teach us? Why do you think He instituted the priesthood? I believe that God was teaching us that we cannot be right with Him through our own efforts, through our own righteousness. It will never, ever, ever be enough. And that's, I believe that's a warning don't try to do that because you're not going to succeed. You can't, you can't be right with me in that way. The next question is, can you be saved through the efforts of another man? Well, they tried that through the priesthood. And as I said, God deliberately set that up as a fallible system so that He could then come and replace it with one that was far better. And to teach us that, listen, your family won't save you. You might have generation after generation of people that live righteous lives, but in, in the final analysis, the fact that you're part of that family will not save you. There's not another single individual that can be the go-between between you and God and make you right with God. So then, how can we be saved? And the answer is pretty obvious. Jesus said this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I believe that everyone in the building this morning believes that. But you know what? I believe that you could also go out in the streets and you could begin to poll people out on the streets that are meeting down here at Starbucks and all over the place. And you could get a lot of people to say that, yeah, they believe that too. But the question is, is that a fact that changes the way that you live? You know, sometimes there are, there are facts, there are things that are true that doesn't really change me very much. For example, I know that a spider has eight legs. But you know what? If it had six or twelve, I'd still step on it if it were in here. It really wouldn't change. The fact that they have eight legs wouldn't really change my behavior very much. This fact should. The fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And because He is that way, He is that truth, He is that life, it should make me a priest that wants to serve in His kingdom 
and, and make sacrifices of myself so that I sacrifice my will and replace it with His and live as a Christian. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you're not, you're not under this. And we, we've proven fairly conclusively, I believe, this morning, you can't be saved of your own devices. I would encourage you to take the step forward. Come sit on the front pew and, and let us assist you in baptism. If there's one in the church that feels like they've strayed, that they haven't been the kind of priest in the Lord's kingdom they needed to be, then I, and we can help you in any way through prayers of the church, then we would also ask that you might come forward as we stand and sing the song.